Luke chapter 6. Finishing up our series on whatever it takes. And this series has been around, going around the issue of money. Today we're going to talk a little more directly about money. And I know that when churches talk about money, it makes people nervous. It's a sensitive issue to talk about money. And churches get a reputation sometimes for being all they care about is your money. People will say, well, you know, maybe I had, you maybe had a bad experience at a church. Or you went to a church that they, they kind of cajoled you. They, they forced you to give or really made you feel guilty about not giving. And people will say to me sometimes, when you preach on money, do you have an agenda? And my answer to that is yes. My agenda is for us to be aligned with what Jesus wants us to do. I mean, our goal as a church is to glorify God by leading people to become passionately devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And passionately devoted followers of Jesus Christ understand what Jesus did and taught and attempt to live our lives in the same way. And Jesus talked about money a lot. In fact, does anybody know where the subject of money ranks on Jesus' top ten list of subjects that he talked about? Anybody know? It's number one, by a lot. Jesus talked about money and possessions more than he talked about heaven and hell combined. And so the question is, Because, you know, if you've been around our church, we don't talk about money all the time. It'll be a little part there. Usually around this time of year in November, we do a Be Rich series talking about how that God has entrusted us with uh, material possessions. And we need to steward those well, be good uh, managers of what's given us to be generous in our giving. But the reality is we talk about a lot of other subjects more than Jesus did in comparison to money and talk about money less than Jesus did in comparison to other subjects. So why do you think Jesus talked about money so much? Because he had an agenda. Is that what you think? Maybe. His agenda was that he knew that one of the biggest temptations for us To replace God with something was within our material possessions. With the stuff we have and the security it brings. We are at the end of 2023. And 2024 is one of those every four years moments. It's a leap year, which means we get an extra day to enjoy. The extra day we got in 2020 wasn't really the exciting one to enjoy, but we get an extra one in 2024. It's Olympics year. Paris Summer Olympics are happening, and it's an election year. Yeah. That's how we all feel, right? A few years ago in 1992, there was an upstart governor running for president against an incumbent. He was a southern guy, and... At the beginning, didn't, people didn't think he had much of a chance because the approval rating of the current president was pretty high, but that sunk over time, and it sunk because of a failing economy. And the strategist for Bill Clinton that was running that upstart governor 
1992 was a guy named James Carville, and he coined a phrase. He actually wrote three phrases on a wall in the Clinton campaign office, and this was number two, but it became the central issue of the campaign, and he would remind people in interviews, and Clinton would talk about it again and again and again. Why vote for Clinton? And they said, it's the economy, stupid. And what they meant by that was, just look at how you're doing financially. And I don't know which side will make a convincing argument in the upcoming election, but the number one issue they'll talk about is who's going to get you more money. Because it's such a centralized part of who we are. So Jesus knew that. And Jesus knew that one of the greatest competitors in our life to God having complete control is Material things. In chapter 6, where we're going to pick up in verse 20, and Daniel read that all for us, we're going to look at parts of that and some chunks of that. There are a couple of lessons that he wants us to learn, and particularly today we're talking about that we want to do whatever it takes to see the harvest that God is calling us to. In chapter 6, verse 20 and following, some people or a lot of people call the Sermon on the Plain because it sounds very familiar to the Sermon on the Mount, but it's shorter. doesn't have quite as much. It may have been spoken in a different location. It gives us a different background at the beginning of what's going on. In fact, it tells us that Jesus has been healing. Jesus has been working. Jesus has been teaching. At this moment in the life of Israel, Jesus is trending. Crowds are flocking. He was a rock star. People are coming to hear by the hundreds and thousands. They're gathering. Wherever he goes, a crowd suddenly appears. Word spreads like wildfire that the rabbi is here. The teacher is here. And Jesus is going to sit them down. He's going to talk to them in an extended way in the book of Luke in chapter 6. And he's going to start with their understanding of money. What he begins his message with is a teaching on money. And it would have been a radical understanding of money for their day. Just look at verses 20 and 24 and the contrast he makes. Then looking up at his disciples, those that are there, he says, Blessed are you who are poor, because the kingdom of God is yours. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort. Blessed are you who are poor because you have the kingdom of God. Woe to you who are rich because you've already got what you want. In their mindset, they would have had this understanding based on some Proverbs we'll read a little bit later, that if you were rich, you were blessed. And that if you were poor, you were cursed. And Jesus comes and says, no, 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 no. Your material possessions do not define who you are in relationship to God. 
By the way, there are a couple of ways that we, we kind of use these issues and we kind of fall off the edge of what is right biblically. And the, the first is a, a poverty side of that that says that only the poor are blessed by God. That's not what Jesus means by here. It doesn't mean that if you have any money, you're not being blessed by God. We'll talk about in a minute what he's really getting at with this teaching. But there are those that say only poor people are right with God. That's not what biblically is being taught here. On the counter to that, what is really the bigger issue that happens that is a false understanding of what Jesus is teaching is the prosperity gospel, which says that if you just have enough faith, if you just live it your, your life right enough, if you just do the right things, then God will bless you and you'll have more than you need and you'll never have to worry about anything. Just live right and everything will be okay. I, um, I, I remember several years ago now, uh, I went and played. Uh, I went and played golf with a couple of our church members, and I was in a, a cart teeing off with Gary Webster. Gary's a pretty good golfer, and I play about every year and a half. We got to a par three, and I hit a shot that was one of the worst shots I've ever hit in my life. Went off the toe, straight right. Just wasn't good at all. And I hit it hard. I just did not hit it straight or any direction that it needed to be hit. And it flew straight into a tree. Hit the tree, bounced left, and rolled to two feet from the cup. And Gary said, I ain't ever playing with you again, preacher. You must be living right, right? And there's this prosperity gospel out here that says, if you're just living like God wants you to do, things like that will just happen in your life. Fortunate things. And there are a couple of problems with the prosperity gospel, and that is that in Scripture there are several people that have significant difficulties in their lives, even when they're living for the Lord. Primarily I'm thinking about the book of Job. When... God doesn't say Job has done anything to deserve the negative things that come in his life, but it does. I think about Joseph, who for a good portion of his life is ridiculed or imprisoned or hurt. And perhaps the the prime example of that is Jesus, who obviously lived exactly what God called him to live and ended up crucified on a cross. Now we know the rest of the story and the glorious resurrection, but there is in some way suffering tied to following Jesus. So part of the problem with the prosperity gospel is just not biblically what we see. Secondly, there's a problem with this idolatry that comes from seeking the gift instead of the giver. Looking for things from God instead of from God. And that's the point and the first countercultural understanding that Jesus wants to get us to understand about money is that we ought to seek our blessing in God more than we seek our blessing from God. We need to seek blessing in God in our relationship with Him more than we seek blessing from God. Our desire ought to be more of an understanding of who He is, more of a relationship, intimacy with Him, more of what He can provide to us instead of the gifts that we are given. 
as I've become a, a parent over the last 20 plus years, I've seen this idea that I, I love to give gifts to my kids. And I love it when they love the gift, but I give it out of an expression of my love for them. And I hope, not that I'm trying to buy their affection, but I hope that in the remembrance of what they've been given, they remember that it comes from someone who cares. And God wants us to enjoy what we have been given in Him. The gifts that He has blessed upon us. Every good gift comes from above. But we are to remember the God who gave it to us and spend our lives seeking him. That's what it means in verse 20 when it says, Blessed are the poor because they have the kingdom of God. He's saying that if you are poor on this earth, yet you are seeking the Lord, that is the ultimate blessing. And for the rich, if all you care about is what you get on this earth, then you have missed it and you've already received your reward and it is temporary and it is fleeting and it will be destroyed. Here's the second thing that he teaches in this passage about generosity and how we live our lives. And that is that we are to treat others as God has treated you. Now look what it says here in this passage as we go on to the next section. But I say to you who listen, love your enemies, do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If anyone hits you on the cheek, offer the other also. And if anyone takes away your coat, don't hold back your shirt either. Give to everyone who asks you. And for someone who takes your things, don't ask for them back. Just as you want others to do for you, do the same for them. We're going to stop there. What do we know that as? The golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Jesus kind of says, and we're going to get in a minute at why this is where he says this, that this is the base level of Christian living. This is not the graduate course or the Ph.D. level. This is the base level that you say, you know what, I'm going to treat you like I want to be treated. Uh, uh, It goes against our natural instinct, which is to treat people the way they treat us. And so someone's nice to us, someone's friendly to us, well, that's a good friend. I'll be friendly and nice to them. If someone mistreats us, if someone lies about us, if someone's suspicious of us, then I'm going to mistreat or I'm going to be wary of them. Like, that's how we live our lives if we just live by the natural kind of law, which is I'm going to treat people the way that I'm treated. In fact, we, in, we put this into our lives and we say if we fail to treat people in the way that they treat us, then at some point we're going to be taken advantage of. In fact, some of you, when you heard what Jesus said there, you're like, well, let's just let them take advantage of you. Can we go back to that slide before this? I mean, look at this. Look look at verse 30 and ask, is this how you live your life? Give to everyone who asks you. And from someone who takes your thing, somebody steals from you, don't don't, don't ask them back. Is that how you live your life? We live saying, what do you mean? I'll give to someone that asks if if I think it's worthy of being asked about or if I've got extra to be able to give. And if someone takes something from me, I may not prosecute them, but I want my stuff back. Jesus is ramping this up. I mean, even at the first part, love your enemies. Do what is good to those who hate you. 
He's saying to them, treat others as you want to be treated. And that's kind of the baseline of it. But look what he goes on to say. So if you go to the next slide and then the next one. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those that love them. If you do what is good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to be repaid in full. Love your enemies. Do what is good. And lend expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High. For he is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful just as your father also is merciful. So the baseline is do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. The golden rule plus. You know, everybody's got a plus now, right? Disney plus. Paramount plus. Like, I've got pluses. The golden rule plus is do unto others what God has done for you. Because God was gracious with you when you didn't deserve it. And he loved you when you didn't ask. And he gave not expecting anything in return. When you think about it, there is no way we can repay what God has done for us. At all. I saw an interview recently with Dan Cathy, who's the former CEO of the Christian chicken place, Chick-fil-A. And he talked about that what makes their customer service good is the second mile principle taken from this passage. He says that we do the things customers expect for us to do and have a right for us to do. We try to get their food in a quick manner. It is a quality issue. We want to make sure it's high quality. We want to do things that are good for them. That, that is what we want to do. He said, but then we encourage our workers to go the extra mile. The, the, the point of that is that in Roman times, a Roman guard, a Roman soldier could come up to you and ask you to walk their stuff for a mile. That's the length that they could ask you, though. They couldn't ask you for more than a mile. And if a Roman soldier asked you to go a mile, you had to go a mile. But that's it. And then you stop. And Jesus says to them, the Roman soldier asked you to go a mile. They would have been so mad that this guy was holding it over them. He says, if they ask you to go a mile, you go the second mile. The extra. And so Dan Cathy said, we would encourage our people to refill drinks without the customer asking and to walk them to the car or to take a heavy load with them. And he said, here's what's fascinating. He said, yes, it it raises our customer service levels. He said, but it also raises our employee satisfaction scores because people are blessed by going the extra mile. He ends this section with one of the most famous places that he talks about. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. He basically says, just treat them like God has treated you. And then here's the last thing, and then we're done. He says to invest in the harvest. Look what he says. Give 
and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. Invest in the harvest. Now, I love this passage. I love these words together. It almost sounds like a, a, a jingle for a food place, you know, pressed down, shaken together, running over, given back to you, poured out to you. I, I got this picture in my mind. Anybody here ever been to one of those, uh, like, a Mongolian grill place? Anybody ever been to one of these places? And you get a bowl, and they charge you for the size of the bowl you get. Right? And then you put whatever ingredients you want into the bowl and you take it to them and they cook it. And there is an art to getting as much as you possibly can into that bowl. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? I mean, there are thinly sliced meats you can line the edge of that bowl with to create a little place. You, you get it, you start putting the stuff in. And when you get certain items in there, what do you have to do? You gotta press it down, right? You gotta get it in there, get it secure. And what do you want it when you get it and bring it to them? Is you want it flowing over. I've even shaken it a little bit to get things to get exactly where it needs to be. And I love the eyes of the person that I hand it to when they see it. Now, I noticed a little while back that when I went to one of these places, there used to be one over in the Glenbrook area, but it, it's, it's not there anymore. When I went to one of these places, they had signs up. Do not overfill your bowls. And I'm like, if it ain't falling, it ain't overfilled. That is my philosophy, right? Now compare that, stuffing everything you can into that, to when you buy a bag of chips at the store. Is it me or is there more air in a bag of chips than there has ever been? Right? It is, what is the least amount of Doritos I can get in the bag and people not get absolutely mad about the air that's in there? So let me ask you this question. When it comes to your giving, are you more of a Mongolian grill? I want to give everything I can, pressed down, stacked in, put together. Or are you more of a Lay's chip? I'm going to give as little as I can. To make it look good. You see, there are some laws of the harvest. First of all, the harvest is dependent upon the planting. Now, we said last week, God is a God that owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God can use whatever he wants. He can create out of nothing. But in our day and time, what we have been taught is, and what we know from Scripture, is that God chooses to move when his people are generous. And when his people are stingy, God often decides he's not going to bless it. The harvest is dependent upon us actually planting. The harvest is dependent upon how much we plant. Uh, when I was in Ripley, pastoring First Baptist Ripley, several of the people that were in our church had agricultural backgrounds and uh, still uh, big-time farmers in that area. And I remember preaching upon this one time. And in an agricultural society that we have moved away from, people fully understood this harvest principle that you only get what you sow. Now, now you get a harvest out of it, and we'll, we'll talk about it in a minute, about some things that come from that. But you only get if you sow. If you don't put anything out there, you don't get a harvest. 
There are other factors that come in, the weather and the fertilization and the soil. Obviously, there are other factors. But the ultimate factor is if you don't put any seed in the ground, you're not going to get a crop. The second thing that we know is the harvest comes later than the planting. And so as we give to the Lord, as we as we sacrifice for the Lord, as we give material possessions or our time or our talents, we may not see immediate returns. In fact, on some things, we may not see returns on this earth. Because it comes later. There's a growing season. The reaping comes months for us in spiritual terms, years, decades, lifetimes later. Here's the really cool thing, though. The harvest is greater than the planting. The law of the harvest is when you plant, you reap not just what you sow, but more than you sow because it gives you the ability to bring in more. What Jesus tells us in this passage, give and it will be given to you. First of all, plant the seed, a good measure. That means great things, more than, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It's that Mongolian grill bowl. Everything in there poured into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. In other words, there's a proportion to what you give, to what you reap, but God is going to do above and beyond what we could ask or imagine. Now that may mean, it could mean that some sort of financial, it could mean some sort of relationship, it could mean something we see here, but it could be something different because what also is included in that is the kind of reward we will get will be greater than what we put in. What I mean by that is, Craig Groeschel says, he's never heard a tearful keep it story. He's never heard an emotional I kept it story. Man, I saw this need in my community and saw this need in my church. And, you know, man, I I thought about it and I prayed about it and I decided not to give. And it changed my life for the better. But how many times have we heard those stories of, man, there was this need in my community, there was this need in my church, there was a need in my neighbor's life, there was a need in this organization, and I saw the need, and I did what I could to help. And the Lord blessed me more than I have ever been blessed. How many times have we heard the story of people who chased after all the things people would say they wanted, And they got it and they found it wasn't what they needed. I listened recently to the memoir of Matthew Perry, one of the guys on Friends who tragically passed away recently. And he talks about a moment where he made a bargain with God. And he said that he would do to the Lord whatever you want me to do if you'll just make me famous. And he said, Two weeks later, I booked friends. And he said, I'm convinced God gave me what I wanted to see that it's not what I needed. And that it never made me happy. The blessing we get from investing in the harvest of God is greater than anything else we can imagine. And here's the last thing. We can't change the past, 
but we can change going forward. And so the question for you today is what is the Lord calling you to do when it comes to whatever it takes to see people reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ, to see our church fulfilling the mission that God has called us to fulfill, to see people saved, to see people that are saved grow into the disciples that you've called them, the Lord's called them to be, and to participate in the harvest of God in the world. You can't do anything about what happened six months ago or two years ago or last week. But we can change now and forward. And may we be a people that see money in the way that Jesus talks about a tool, an opportunity to invest in the things of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray today in this place that your will will be done here as it is in heaven. People's lives will be changed, that shifts will be made, and Lord, that you'll call us to a lifestyle of generosity for the sake of the kingdom. That we'll give as you have given, sacrificially. That we'll love as you have loved. That we'll serve as you have served. And Lord, that we will seek you more than what you can give us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.